Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, Uh, welcome to episode 22 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Nice to be back with you again, looking out my window of my garden office. It's uh, a bit grim and grey and wet out there, so uh, I think everyone's looking forward to the warmer days and a bit of sunshine, aren't they? So this week uh, I've interviewed uh, Jeannie Brooks, and Jeannie uh, has had a fascinating career in the police, a fantastic role model for uh, younger women maybe wanting to come into the job, and she's a really good example of uh, someone who has really uh, embraced the opportunities that a long career in the police can offer. She's done some really cool stuff. Uh, and rather than sort of talk too much about that right now, I'll, I'll let you listen to the interview in a moment. But before I go into that, uh, just a little quick roundup on one or two bits and bobs. So last Wednesday, I think it was, um, the Daily Express published a, a two-page article uh, that I had written, uh, which was really good of them to do that, actually. Um, I've got to say, I'm not, uh, I've am not. i never been a particular reader of the Daily Express, but um, it was really nice of them to ask me to write the article, uh, and they faithfully published pretty much 99% of what I wrote, which was really good, so two full pages in the paper. It's had a lot of really positive um feedback as as has most of the stuff that I've put out whether it's uh, the book or whether it's the podcast or whatever I do a lot of blogging on my uh, website which uh, if you're not sure where that is that's uh, www.tjfbookalloneword.com so all my blogs are on that uh, as as are all of the podcasts but I think I think most people tend to tend to go to either um, Apple or Spotify for the podcasts. But um, but yeah, so but what I want to talk about briefly is just some of the um, hostile and negative reaction that that, that article actually provoked um, from, from sort of slightly unexpected quarters, really. Uh, and that tends to be um, police officers themselves, um, particularly, I think, currently serving police officers. So... I think it's fair to say that 95% of the feedback that I've had so far 
from everything I've done has been unbelievably positive. I think people have just been desperate, starving to 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 hear this kind of stuff, you know, where they've had to listen to so much uh, bullshit uh, for so many years, either from politicians or from um, the media who basically um, misrepresent what policing does, or for that matter, from police leaders who are just in a sort of institutional world of uh, self-delusion, I think, a lot of the time, uh, and, um, you know, operate within something of an echo chamber. So I think there's um, definitely something there about people really being grateful for someone saying it as it is. But it's not all been like that, and some police officers have actually... uh, are very bitter, they're very, very bitter about what was done to policing. And um, the article in The Express, I actually, I put that on a number of different forums. I put it on LinkedIn, got a lot of really positive reactions. Uh, and I put it on the uh, two or three uh, uh, Facebook sites that I'm a member of. And again, I got really positive reaction. But it, I put it on another police-only police Facebook site and had a completely different reaction. It's really interesting, a really different reaction. Uh, very angry responses, very hostile. Uh, people basically saying, well, this is just typical, isn't it? This is a ex-senior officer, um, you know, uh, who, who was part of the problem himself by virtue of the fact that I was a senior officer in the police during that period of time. You know, you, you're quite happy to publish this book and... Uh, pontificate on all of these things uh, you know what were you doing at the time whenever policing was being completely trashed uh, you're just as much as a part of the problem as uh, people like Theresa May were who did this um, you know they just feel totally let down by their leadership over many many years so when I read that stuff I was obviously quite taken aback by it and um, it kind of stings really to to read that stuff but you know bottom line is if you put yourself out there you've got to expect that you're going to get some negativity coming back but the the point was that um, I needed to really reflect long and hard about some of that commentary and uh, I'll just read out um, one of the reviews that went up on for this podcast actually and it's one star so obviously someone's seriously got the hump haven't they if you give and give something a one star review and um, it says uh, the title is the horse has bolted so um, the review says I listened to this with much hope but I can't get over the fact that Ian Donnelly had ample time and power to stand up and speak out about what was going wrong with British policing while serving as a superintendent by any standards that's pretty high up the chain of command In his own words, he chose not to rock the boat, which makes him an undeniable part of the problem. And so I find it a bit hard to listen to him bite the hand that fed him, while no doubt enjoying a lavish pension. And that, dear listeners, is all you need to know about why the job's fucked. So, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's entitled to their opinion, aren't they? And um, I suppose, you know... (laughs) without wanting to get too defensive about it, um, I would probably say um, uh, he chose, in his own words, he chose not to rock the boat. Uh, I'm not quite sure that's what I actually said, but um, you know, I think I was probably just realistic about what I personally could achieve 
in terms of um, you know tackling some of those deep problems. Um, am I biting the hand that fed him? No, I'm not really. I'm not biting the hand of policing. I'm biting, you know, I'm, I'm biting against uh, the political issues that created that horrible situation, and um, I'm, I'm biting back at the media. But obviously, because I'm quite a reflective person um, by nature, um, you have to really sit and think. And I did. I went away and I really thought about this. I thought, you know, could I have done more? Could could we all have done more to stop this horrible situation? Um, and I'm a I'm a big follower of uh, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's a uh, a sort of a, a clinical psychologist. He's got a huge global following. He wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life, and he's done some really fantastic lectures that you can listen to on, um, you know, his podcast, the Jordan Peterson podcast. And and he talks about a situation where uh, I think he, he makes reference to the book The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn was incarcerated in one of the uh, communist gulags for many years and, and that's where he kind of uh, he wrote the book The Gulag Archipelago and uh, which was partly responsible for actually bringing down the communist regime because it exposed the, the tyranny of, of communism and, and one of the things that Solzhenitsyn um, did and by the way I'm not comparing myself to Alexander Solzhenitsyn just so there's no confusion about that um, one of the things that he had to come to terms with personally was that uh, in many ways everyone to some extent is a contributor to a tyrannical situation. So, you know, Solzhenitsyn was a member of the Communist Party and he had to be ruthlessly honest with himself about what he had done, if if anything, to actually contribute to his own demise, I suppose. So in the same spirit, I kind of looked back, you know, at my contributions over the years and thought, right, could I have done, could I have done anything to stop this? Um, and frankly, I, I came to the conclusion that um, I'm not sure that there, there was really. Um, so 2010, Theresa May came to power um, as, you know, Home Secretary um, and then later as Prime Minister. Um, I was a detective inspector at that time. Um, the, the Police Federation and the Superintendents Association nationally were very vocal in terms of, um, you know, warning her about what the likely outcomes of all of this were likely to be. Um, they were all completely ignored. Um, so if the Federation and the Police Superintendents Association were ignored, then what's the likelihood of, of me standing up um, <clears throat> and anyone listening to me? Probably nil, I would suggest. Uh, the toxic narrative from the media, uh, really, is there anything I could personally have done to push back against that? Um, no, I don't think so. Every force has its own corporate communications department. Um, they are in charge of that narrative coming out of policing. And if I, I'm under no illusion whatsoever that if I had written this book or done this podcast while still a serving officer, I would have been called pretty smartly into the chief constable's office and basically given one of two choices. I would have been told, you either resign or we sack you. Um, I, can't, I can't see how I could have even done what I'm doing now while still a serving officer. Because the bottom line is, whether people like it or not, it's a disciplined service 
So you've got that sort of horrible combination of it being a disciplined service. It's a public body as well with certain kind of um, rules about what you're allowed to say and do uh, that control every kind of aspect of your private life. And um, and you're also in an organisation that has no in industrial rights as such. So we can't withdraw our labour, we can't strike. And that's exactly where uh, the government had policing massively over a barrel because they knew there was absolutely nothing whatsoever that we could do about it. But I, I get it, you know, I, I get the fact that uh, some of the people who are probably making those comments to my article um, are probably in that situation where they've had the rug pulled from under their feet financially um, because of the changes in terms of terms and conditions of employment and pensions and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, you've got someone like me, um, you know, pontificating on, on a podcast and writing a book about how terrible things have been for policing whilst at the same time drawing a police pension. And I know that that probably doesn't sit comfortably with some people, but I suppose in my defence, what I would say would be, well, better that someone's saying it than no one's saying it, because if no one was saying it, then you know what? You're going to get more of the same. So, And what I'd also say, I suppose, would be if someone feels like that, anyone feels like that, um, drop me a line. You know where I am. Um, you've got my email address on the uh, website, tg, tjfbook.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Um, drop me a line. Tell me why, what you think and why you think it. And if you feel that strongly about it, then come on the podcast and we'll have a conversation about it. Um, you know, I'm a reasonable bloke, I think. Okay. Um, so if we move into the interview with uh, Jeannie Brooks. Uh, this week, folks, um, I've got the absolute pleasure to be speaking to Jeannie Brooks, uh, Eugenie Brooks, um, who has uh, had a really interesting career um, and is going to tell us today all about her career as well as particularly uh, the special escort group. So uh, Jeannie, welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Pleased <laughs> to be here. So just to kind of um, explain um i said in my previous podcast how i was going to try really hard to get more uh women on the podcast who've got a really interesting story to tell um it's been a bit male dominated up until now um for no particular reason it's just that uh, that's you know the people who have kind of put themselves forward tend to be blokes but i sort of thought right we need to get more women on here because a lot of the you know some of the very best people i've worked with in the job were, were female officers so so yeah, well done you for putting yourself forward and being a victim. So um, do you want to just give us a brief kind of overview um, of uh, when you joined and, um, you know, maybe some of your early thoughts about why you decided to join the police, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. Uh, I joined uh, 13th of January 1986, screen intake um, at Hendon. Uh, I'd always wanted to join the job. Uh, I'm one of those people that... Uh, I couldn't walk past something that was going on that shouldn't be going on. I always had to stick my nose in. Uh, as a result of that, I'd, um, I, I say I joined the job in 86. Before then, I'd been a special and a cadet in Thames Valley Police. Oh, wow. You really did uh, go for it, didn't you? Yeah, then? I did. Yeah. So um, I joined the job, uh, joined the Met and went off to Heathrow as a probationer. They were looking for volunteers to go there because they were so short. Right. Um, so uh, off I went to Heathrow which probably wasn't the best place to go as a probationer. It was, it was a bit different. Um, Fantastic. And uh, then uh, I did my, I can remember doing my CTC classes at Acton with Sergeant Magor, 
who used to right. put the fear of God into us, but what a great man he was. And uh, But I was really jealous listening to the stories other probationers were telling. So at the end of my two years probation, the chief superintendent at Heathrow uh, rang up his mate at uh, Kensington and said, I've got yeah. a WPC here. She's very keen. She doesn't hasn't had a lot of experience here at Heathrow. Can she come? So about a month later, off I went to Kensington. Brilliant. So just rewind then a little bit mm-hmm. um, back to sort of early days of training school. So obviously you'd been a cadet and then you'd been a special. So I suppose compared to a lot of people, um, you were probably pretty clued up to what the job was all about. So did you find, um, you know, being at Hend and doing your training way back in those days, was that a sort of a, a sort of a shock to the system or did you just take all that in your stride? I think I was... Uh... I was lucky insofar as I was used to silly little things like used to wearing the uniform. Uh, people, a lot of the uh, lads and lasses I, I was at Hendon with hadn't had to still get used to walking past, you know, uh, a, a mirror and seeing them in the uniform. I'd had all that. Uh, I was always picked out myself and another lad in my class, Tim Nelligan. It's amazing how you remember these names. Uh, we were always the two that were picked up to do activities and anything that if you had a visitor coming along to look at Hendon, and they wanted to look at probationers, they'd come and look at us because we kind of knew what we were doing and we could string a sentence together. <laughs> you, you, you knew how to march as well, probably. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, obviously, I had been taught in Thames Valley back in the early 80s of uh, the Ways and Means Act, so I had to retweet or re, <laughs> uh, re-educate myself yeah. into the actual legal way of doing things as opposed to some of the ways that some officers did it on the streets in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is bearing in mind the context of all of this is, you know, mid 80s, um, you know, Pierce had only just come in, hadn't it? Yeah, that's I suppose. right. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot of officers who were still struggling, you know, with with that level of accountability, I suppose. Yes. Um, so so you left uh, training school, went off to Heathrow. So that that's a really strange one for me because Heathrow is such a little... Um, sort of bubble isn't it it's such an unusual um, little ecosystem if that doesn't sound too um, pretentious to say that and and a slightly unusual place to to send a brand new probationer you know how did you find it in those days well there were 12 of us who got sent there from uh, training school because they couldn't actually at that time get anyone to go to Heathrow how times have changed Uh, but I, I I enjoyed it it was different because my father um, had actually worked at Heathrow. As a, he worked. He was a pilot in British Airways. Uh, mm-hmm. Prior to that, he'd been in the Second World War as a fighter pilot, and so I've always been brought up going to Heathrow to collect Dad from the airport. So I thought it'd be quite good to go and work there. Yes, it was different. I was. A, it's got its own little ecosystem, as you say. And mm-hmm. there's a custody suite there. There's a traffic unit there. There was a tout squad there. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get. I mean, we did get shoplifters there, you know, from the uh, sh- from the shops in the uh, terminal buildings, but it wasn't the same mm. as some of the probationers' experiences that I was hearing about. Yeah, yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna be exposed to certain <clears throat> things, aren't you, that others aren't? But equally, um, I suppose if you want to have that broad range of initial policing experiences, working mm. within a, a community of all sorts of people, then you're not going to get that at Heathrow, I suppose, no. are you? Um, no. So you got to the end of your two years and mm-hmm. a bit like me then. So I because I describe in one of my in my last podcast with Fiona, I described how I got I wasn't particularly happy with my initial posting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I literally the very day that I got confirmed, 
I put in a 728 as it was in those days. Yeah, much. yeah. But in a 728 to um to be moved and I went up to Clapham. So it sounds mm-hmm. like you did the same, is that right? I did, yeah. And actually, sadly, I do still have all the 728s, all the paperwork from when I first joined the job all the way through to me when I retired. And I dug them out the other day mm-hmm. and I found my 728 asking for permission to transfer to a, an inner London busier station. Yeah. And uh, so off I went to Kensington to Bravo Delta. Brilliant. So um, how did you find that? Did you find that sort of really different on arriving at Kensington? I absolutely loved it. It was just like working in Thames Valley in Maidenhead. Like I'd worked before. Uh, it was a busy place, uh, far busier than Maidenhead, but uh, mm. that the relief were fantastic. They took me under their wing because I wasn't a probationary WPC. I missed uh, the typical CAD courses that were always assigned to female officers in those days. Uh, and so I was very lucky. I, I did my whole service without one of those awful computer courses. Uh, yeah. So I was um, not a probationer at Kensington, obviously, but I went through and I got my driving courses there. The mm. lads and lasses took me under their wing and they were fantastic. And in fact, uh, we are still having uh, BD reunions. We've got really? two coming on this year. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. See, I, uh, I, um, <clears throat> so I, I worked in sort of outer London, first of all, and then I came in and worked in the inner city in Clapham. But I often um, used to go to those sort of places like Kensington and think, wow, this this feels like quite an exciting, interesting sort of place to work because you've got so much variety there, mm-hmm. haven't you? Yeah. You've got you've got um, some pretty um, down at heel council estates, haven't you? Mm-hmm. And you've also got multi-millionaire, billionaire types, haven't you? Absolutely. And, and, and then this incredible hustle and bustle of Kensington High Street yeah. and you know, yep. the restaurants and the bars and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, you've really got everything there, haven't you? We have, yeah. If you weren't, came out of Kensington, depending on what beat you were given, obviously, nine beat was right at the bottom next to Fulham Road uh, and 16 beat was north of Kensington High Street. Mm. And uh, if you came out the police station and turned left, went up the high, up to the high street, that was all the nice areas down there. Then we had the Boltons, which is a lovely area as well. Beautiful houses. Then you went, if you turned right out of the police station, went down the Earls Court Road, that's where you met the prostitutes, the t- uh, uh, and all the the ne'er do wells, as it were, the drunks hanging outside um, yeah. Ells Court tube station. But you know, some of those people, the I chief met, superintendent, chief absolutely, superintendent, yes, <laughs> coming yes. out of the pub, <laughs> <laughs> the DI. <laughs> yeah, I, I can remember having to take uh, the DI home in the back of the GP car because he was too drunk to drive, which makes a change. Yes. Oh dear, it's funny. Um, so, so Kenzie, so long did you do there? I did. I was there from 88 to about, I did about two and a bit years there. Yeah, okay. about two and a half years. And then uh, then you decided to specialise, isn't that right? I did. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Cart, had been at Kensington with me and uh, I saw him go off to traffic division and he used to turn up for a cup of tea and park his solo downstairs in the uh, car park there. So I thought, well, I fancy a bit of that because I just got into motorcycling myself. Right. And uh, so I, I applied um, I think there's about 12 or 14 people applied and a couple of us got in. I was the only girl that applied and I was the only girl that got in. And I was told by some of the uh, the PCs on my relief that I probably only got it because I was female. All right. Oh, charming. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so just just um, on that one. So as you've mentioned that that issue, it's worth just asking that question just generally. How did you find um, being a woman in the police back in the 19? 19- 80s um did you experience much sexism uh looking back I suppose I did but I just you just deal with it you didn't really I, I don't 
I didn't look at it as it's sexism. It was just you had to be accepted. You had to put up with some things. Um, mm. I can remember as a probationer at Heathrow, I was helping the sergeant put up the Christmas decorations in the canteen. And in those days, WPCs wore skirts. And I'm standing on the on the desk in the canteen, pinning up uh, the Christmas decorations. Mm. And the sergeant's handing up to me, no problem there. And then the doors opened and in walked one of the security uh, PCs because it was a uh, then it was security and general duties yeah and considering that his inspector security inspector was sitting there as indeed was my duty inspector uh, they both watched as he staggered up towards me because he was drunk mm. carrying oh, a no. firearm mm. and uh, he put his hand up my skirt oh god uh, so I was a bit uh, scared, you know shouted and, and jumped down I was really I was a young naive girl in those days and yeah, yeah. I can remember uh, oh, it's all a bit of a kerfuffle, and they 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 took him out, and they took off his gun, and they sent him home. Um, and I was told to clear up the Christmas decorations. Oh God, a drunk man with a gun committing yes. a sexual assault. I mean, how many offences have you got there? You know, I mean, it's just uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Well, I think you've probably answered my question there. Um, and yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? But you know, I suppose that's that was um, the. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying this to sort of to excuse it far from it but you know the culture was was very very different wasn't it oh definitely definitely and I didn't even think it was well I knew it was an assault but I I didn't know what to do because I joined the police to help people not be Mm, indecently assaulted as I as I know I was yeah 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 so um so joining traffic um were you um very unusual as a female traffic officer in those days I mean there were female officers um who had gone prior to me in traffic and had ridden motorbikes. Uh, one girl that was there, Christine Ashby, who was a female federation rep, lovely lady. Uh, I worked with her husband, Steve, on my relief. Um, but she was normally away on federation stuff. So I was the girl on six area traffic. There were other female officers uh, riding mm-hmm. motorbikes in those days. but And we all knew each other, quite frankly. But we were very much in a minority. And we used to get the double takes all the time. You walk yeah. into somewhere or you've got your crash helmet on, you've got your blonde ponytail out the back. People yeah. double took all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where were you? Ba- were you based at Alperton? I was based at Alperton, just of Hangar Lane. Yep. I've got a funny story to tell you about Alperton. Um, when I when I when I was on surveillance, um, I, I did my surveillance course, um, which is you know, four week course, two weeks on foot, two weeks mobile. And um, it, you know, anyone who's done a surveillance course knows it's incredibly stressful and demanding um, course. You know, and um, they're pretty intolerant of of um fail you know just mistakes mm-hmm. you get you maybe get two opportunities to make a mistake and that's it you get binned off it you know mm-hmm. I'd I'd um done fine you know generally on the course but anyway it got to the very final day which is the final exercise you know it's like the final drive on your advanced driving mm-hmm. isn't it you know what I mean you've got properly under pressure it was probably a four or five hour exercise all over London, driving, foot foot follows, um, putting us into some very, very difficult, um, mm-hmm. you know, stressful situations. Anyway, I had abandoned my car in um, a car park somewhere in West mm-hmm. London um, to go off on a foot follow. And, um, and then it got to the end of the afternoon. It was like, you know, the instructor called up on the radio, right, end X, that's it, all done. Mm-hmm. And everybody heaves a massive sigh of relief, mm-hmm. don't they? And um, so anyway, I got someone to give me a lift back to where my car was parked in this pub car park. Everything had gone fine for four weeks, you know. Got into the car, started it up, put it into reverse, 
and then this god almighty crash as I <laughs> reversed into this <laughs> this low con concrete oh. post that was not visible in my wing mirrors mm -hmm. completely stoved in the back of the uh. the police car the surveillance car so I called up the instructors and I said oh God, you know, and they gave me a bit of a sort of half-hearted bollocking, but I'd passed the course, you know, so there's nothing they could, you know, it wasn't an issue really, because the course was over. Um, so I said, right, get yourself off to traffic garage um, to report it. So I drove to Alperton and hmm. walked in, and there was the most humorless, bloody, miserable traffic sergeant there <laughs> who um you know, I tried to explain, I've just finished a four-week course and everyone's very stressful, blah, 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 blah. He just wasn't having it. So he reported it, I reported it, and uh, he, he put six six <gasps> points on my police driving license. Uh, so for anybody listening, doesn't understand, you've got a police driving license and then you've got a civilian driving license and mm -hmm. works exactly the same way. I'm not sure if it still does, but um, you've basically got 12 points. And if you get 12 points on your police driving license, you, you get banned from driving, mm -hmm. don't you? That's so correct, yeah. So before I'd even started my career as a surveillance officer, <laughs> I already had six points on my driving license. But anyway, sorry, I'll uh, carry on. So you went to Alperton. Um, yeah. So you learned, you did the motorcycle course. Yeah. Um, tell me about that, because that's a hard course, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, the motor, I'm, I'm five foot 11. Um, so I've never had any issues with my height. Uh, I was able to lift the motorcycle up when it fell over if needed on the, on the course. Uh, I had no problems on the motorcycle course. Yes, it is very scary at some stages when they, they do push you. But I must say every single motorcycle instructor that I met at Hendon, absolutely superb. I never had any issues with them whatsoever. I know of other female officers who did go on bike courses who I personally would have sent on a bike course because they were too short. Uh, a bike, a motorcycle, we have various types of motorcycles, sizes in the police, uh, but they have to be of a certain height and a certain build because they have to sit on the side of the road with their blue lights on. You can't have little tiny ones. Mm, mm. And so some of the feet, I know there's some male officers as well who had, because obviously by then height restrictions, I think had started to go. So mm -hmm. we're getting shorter male officers as well. And some of them literally couldn't, their feet couldn't touch the floor. But saying that, I work with some female officers in traffic who were petite, small little girls. Yeah. Uh, and one of them, Carol Baker, if I may say, she was absolutely superb. She, if you if you blew your nose, she'd probably blow her away because there's nothing of her, but she could yeah. ride a motorbike. Absolutely. It's positive mental attitude. And what I were found. you, what were you, what bikes for the for the <clears throat> bikers out there? What bikes were you riding in those days? Right, initially yeah, they're all BMWs, and it was an R80 that I, I uh, started with, and then halfway through the course they changed it to a K75, which is another BMW bike. Right. Uh, slightly higher seat, but it didn't really bother me at all. Um, you just get on and, and do it. And uh, because I was a obviously had to be a motorcyclist anyway, privately, uh, and I'd ridden to and from work every day to Kensington, I was mm. used to uh slow moving traffic uh but some of the, the fast ones we did that was that was interesting the, the fast roads out to wherever we went can't yeah. remember now <laughs> yeah 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 so um there's so many things i could ask you about this so um in terms of the actual job itself so um just to put this in context back then and correct me if i'm wrong here back then traffic tended 
generally just to deal with traffic related matters. Um, whereas today, I think it's probably fair to say that traffic tend to be one of the few parts of policing that still has the time and inclination and ability to deal with criminality proactively criminality whereas back in those days as I recall um, traffic tended to focus more on traffic matters would that be fair? That's correct some of the uh, officers I, I work with they just dealt with traffic and that's what we dealt with I, I was on a motorbike I'd be posted out I'd have to have 12 tickets a day and that's what I did and you just sit up in uh, on a bus lane or red traffic light and and you just fill them all out it's, it's easy it was like shooting fish in a barrel as it were yeah. however I when I was in the car um I used to be put with the same couple of officers who were all still very keen let's say mm -hmm. they were still police officers they still had maintained their power of arrest right yeah, the yeah. traffic officers hadn't um and so we were became the second uh, area car as it were for Hayes or West Drayton right. or we, wherever we were whatever area we were on we would we would turn our radio to that local police mm. uh, uh, area radio so yeah. if we had urgent assistance calls fights domestics mm. uh, we back up the area car yeah and it's you know I don't want to sort of sign that's um, you know there were you're absolutely right there were certain traffic officers who who were really up for it uh, and really up for proactive policing and actually you know tackling criminals hmm. i think the expression is denying criminals the use of the road isn't it so it, um, yeah and, and i think that's what it should be about but but equally occasionally i remember in clapham we used to tear our hairs hair out some sometimes because you would there'd be a traffic initiative of some description mm -hmm. and you would be posted to go and work with the local <laughs> as a local officer you'd be posted two or three of you would be posted to go and work with the traffic officers on a main sort of thoroughfare, Clapham Road or Stockwell Road or Wandsworth Road or one of those, you know, main arterial routes into London. Mm -hmm. And and these traffic officers um, uh, would be stopping these people who who we knew or at least suspected were just real wrongins mm -hmm. um, and the drug dealers or whatever. And they would issue them with a, a haughty, sorry, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that, that is, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, a, a producer, I suppose, in old language, yeah. isn't it? It's a producer mm -hmm. documents, a local police station. Or they would they would put them on the vehicle defect rectification scheme, VDRS, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for a, uh, a brake light that was out or something like that. And, and, and we knew that the name that the bloke had given them was just complete nonsense. It was complete mm -hmm. bollocks made up name. Absolutely. And, and you would never see them again. And there was probably yep. going to be, there's probably drugs and guns and all sorts in the car, but the yep. certain traffic officers were just so kind of blinkered. You know, did you, did you, did you work with people like that? I did, yes. Uh, I, I, I like the way you use the term blinkered. I think uh, that's correct in some of them. Some of them were just lazy. Mm. They just knew that they had to do X amount of tickets a day. They wanted to go home at the end of the day. They didn't want to be um, late home because they'd arrested some local oik for whatever it was. Mm. Um, and they weren't interested in the crime side of things. Mm. Whereas other officers I work with, absolutely superb, absolutely mm. some, such good thief takers. And some of them would join traffic because that was um, um, instead of foot duty and getting the uh, and getting the criminals that way they could actually follow them in the cars because those mm. people who are committing crimes have to get from as you well know from a to b in a vehicle mm -hmm. i loved nothing more than being called up on the radio any vehicle examiner able to deal with a, a stop x-ray yeah. yankee se hayes section and you turn up there and there's a little oik that they like you say they know that they're, they're a wrong one and so mm. i would turn up and um say right okay what we got here and i remember one lad 
Um, he said, you won't find anything wrong with this vehicle, love. It's <laughs> <laughs> like wrong, wrong answer. Well, <laughs> wrong answer. He saw his vehicle being transported away on the back of a low loader because I PG9'd it. Uh, so, yeah, it was, we, I felt that traffic, I was very uh, privileged to be given a motorbike and petrol to drive around and, a, and a, an advanced car course. But we were there in support of the foot duty. Yeah, uh, because in those days it was felt that foot duty was the bottom of the pile, and I'm sure that some of the colleagues listening out there now will probably feel the same way. Unfortunately, but mm. we are support services, and yes, I loved. I did off-road driving with the. I had all various competitions. I was involved in in the Metropolitan Police Motor Club. I went to Russia. Uh, I went oh, wow. all the way around Norway and Sweden, um, Belgium, France. Went up to the Arctic Circle, but I was very very lucky to do all those. But I knew Brilliant. why I was there. Um, to support the, the local lads and lasses brilliant so so you spend some time on traffic and um so what happens next what's your next kind of move in the job well the job decided to come up with this brilliant idea called tenure uh, mm. which is once you as you well know if you've been in a, a, a an area department for a certain length of time you have to move back to foot duty and i thought well okay i'm not frightened about that but i've got all these qualifications and i don't really want to lose them and i had actually seen while i've been on traffic i've been on attachment to the special escort group which is part of the royalty protection group mm -hmm. um and they escort the queen and royal family around they do high value loads and deal with terrorist prisoners so i thought oh i fancy a bit of that actually but i'm not quite sure if i'm good enough mm -hmm. you know that, that there's only one girl in it at the time sue mclaren absolutely wonderful lady um and she did try to convince me to join several times when i was a WPC in traffic but I thought oh I don't I don't know and the fitness level and oh, mm -hmm. some of those old boys that she works with they just oh no I wouldn't want to now I don't want to work with them uh so I took promotion and I jumped through the hoops it was those <laughs> days where you took an exam passed that then I had to do a part two which I think I had to I had to I'd actually I paid for a course to we learn it, how to it, we used to call it let's pretend didn't we that's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, so I had to pretend to do all these different scenarios. So I did that. And then I think I had a part three as well, which was an interview by the Met or something. Mm -hmm. But I jumped all those hoops and I got it. And uh, I saw an application out for sergeants at Heathrow. So I thought, aha, Heathrow, firearms. Hmm. And I could mm -hmm. keep, they've got a traffic unit there. I could keep my motorcycle qualification. So I applied and was successful. So off I went Brilliant. to Heathrow as a newly qualified sergeant. So you got your firearms course there? Yes, I did. I went to Lippitz Hill. Mm. Uh, How did you find I, that? Well, that was interesting. Uh, I must admit, I was looking through some notes I made about it the other couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was one of two girls on a course of about 20, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the other girl, she was uh, still friends with her, uh, Jill. She is, I think she was going to Flying Squad. Mm -hmm. She's a quite a petite girl. And I remember the first day, I think uh, Lippitz Hill is an old, Second World War uh, prisoner of war camp, That's right. uh, for, and so it's a lovely huts. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're sitting in this. I remember it well. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. So I went to the sitting in this Nissan hut with all these other lads, big roughy tufty guys, for me and Jill, and mm. um, that the instructors all come in and they chuck this load of pile of uh, body armor in bits on the floor. Went right, there's your body armor. Make it up yourself. Like and of course they're all blokes body armor so uh, right. uh yeah there's none of this female shaped body armor or mm -hmm. considering that in those days I was, I was a bit more curvy in those days <laughs> and uh so we me and jill managed to put together a, a kind of body armor front and back with a cover but i found that because it was straight down when i, I was i'm left-hander so when i had to fire or pull out the the, the um the glock i had to actually mm -hmm. lean to my right 
to actually yeah. get the body armor away from the Glock so I could pull the gun out. And mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, we. I've, so you did. Um, you didn't. You, you did nine millimeter Glocks. Um, yes, I did. And did you did you do the um, the um, H and K the MP5s yeah. as well? Yeah. I, when I went back to Heathrow, we had a five day course at Douglas Webb Section House, which is just up the road from Heathrow, and underneath there there was a, a range, and we were taught by the instructors there. So I had a five day MP5 course. I can remember sitting in the dark, being told how to strip down an MP5 in the dark. Um, which was very interesting. Um, so were they single <laughs> shot or were they, were three? Were they single shot or three three round bursts? They were single shot. There was a selector lever. They what you could touch these. Some of the older ones you could take the selector lever out and have them on automatic. But obviously, police officers don't have automatic um, MP5s, so we could only single shot selector lever to fire single mm. shot every time. But you could double tap, but you weren't. Mm. I, I was taught to do that, but. Yeah, but as, as I recall from being on a surveillance team, going going to 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 do the vehicle drills and and whatnot um, with the team and the instructors, the SO19 instructors mm -hmm. managed to put an awful lot of rounds into you very very quickly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they had special instructors' weapons, didn't they? Yeah, I was using the sim ammunition, you know. But oh yes, they, yes. they would be up on the uh, you know the high walkways, and we'd be down doing vehicle drills, trying to get uh -huh. over vehicles or take cover behind vehicles or mm -hmm. doing reversing or whatever. And they would be putting a lot of rounds into you very, very yes. accurately, very yeah. quickly. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I don't think the fact that it wasn't full automatic didn't make <laughs> made a lot of difference, really. No, no. Um, brilliant. So, so you do that, um, and uh, so you're. How long did you stay at Heathrow then, doing that? I was there. I got promoted went there in two thousand, and I left in two thousand and six. Right. So. Okay. And and that's when you went to. The SCG, is that right? Yes, I went to Royalty Protection or the Special Escort Group, which is part, you know, there's just three parts of the Royalty Protection, the Special Escort Group, there's Close Protection, and then there's Static Protection, which is the lads and lasses you see in uniform outside the palaces. So um, I think, I mean, I don't want to get all elitist here, but I think it's <clears> fair, to, fair to say that the Special Escort Group are the absolute cream of the sort of mobile, armed... Um, sort of escort and protection in the world really i think that'd probably be reasonable to say that i couldn't put it better myself but yes you're <laughs> completely correct yes absolutely and everyone sort of you know they they were probably the first to do it so just tell me tell me um you know the training to be on the special escort group so so i've only got i've only had one proper experience of of working with a special escort group and that was when i was in the counterterrorism unit and we had done a week's um, detention with some terrorist prisoners in, in the Midlands. This was back in about 2012, 13, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I the, I was the DI um, doing the detention for the prisoners for the week. And then they got, uh, you know, charges authorised. And then it was a, <coughs> a blue light run all the way down from the Midlands down to London. Mm -hmm. And then we got picked up by your people about somewhere top of the M25, somewhere yep. top of the mm -hmm. M1. And I've got to say, Jeannie, it was poetry in motion. <laughs> yeah. being, being taken by your people um, from, from that point where they picked us up, because um, we came down in the convoy, blue lights with <clears throat> firearms and traffic officers. And then, as you say, the mm -hmm. SEG then picked us up at the top of the M25 mm -hmm. and then took us all the way to court. And then, and then once the prisoners had been sort of appeared and remanded, 
the, the group took us across the, the whole of London. I've got to say, and I talk about this in my book, um, it was the most be- amazing blue light run I've ever done in the police. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. So, so tell me about the training to do that job. Oh, of course. It- well, to apply, and uh, it's a bit rusty now, I think, but you had to be, well, I was an already advanced car uh, and a standard motorcyclist. So, uh, but you had to be a, a car driver, definitely, um, and a motor, standard motorcyclist. So I applied, got in, and then I had a series of courses. And I thought, I looked at the list of courses and I was very put off by it. But I thought, actually, how do you eat an elephant a little bit at a time? So let's just do one course at a time. So I had uh, my SEG course, first of all, techniques course. And that was very hard. Very, uh, it was based at the SEG base at Maltby Street, which is where I was based, mm-hmm. uh, run by the in-house instructors who are all experienced SEG officers. And it was to do with the car and the motorcycling um, and how, as you, as you experienced yourself, how to keep that convoy moving at all costs, whether it be on your side of the road or the, as we call it, the SEG side of the road. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, it was it was hard work, and obviously you're you're coming home, coming back to the base every day, and you have the cleaning the bikes, making sure they're beautiful and, and polished. Even the underside of the exhaust would be polished. Uh, your own kit would have to be immaculate, board mm. boots, uh, yellow jackets, not some of the green ones you might have seen some of the uh, traffic officers wearing. Um, clean crash helmet, the the visors, everything had to be completely immaculate. So it was long, long days but well worth it and it was so nice to be part of something that people took such a pride in uh, mm. having been at various police stations and you can as you well know you, you they get run down don't they and then yeah. people put rubbish everywhere or they put an old chair out on the corridor and they leave it and I think that has a, a knock-on effect on how the police officers feel about themselves and their working environment yeah whereas if it's clean and tidy and neat yeah. um, and polished yeah. You go into the SEG base, it was amazing. They oh, were right. so proud. They've got massive OCD, have they? Uh, yes. Yes, <laughs> I would say they have got massive OCD. Uh, but it was a pleasant change. It was a pleasant change. Uh, the female locker room, well, it was a storeroom when I was there because I was the only girl there. Uh, Sue, by then, uh, who was the SEG, first ever SEG girl there, she'd gone on to drive for Special Branch, I believe. Right. Um, so I had the old female locker room which is more like a storeroom really but the lads had had tidied it up for me and made me welcome put my little name on the on the locker and such like so you were the only um female sergeant on on the group is that right i was the first ever female sergeant on the group and at that time i was the only female officer on the seg yes wow so that's proper trailblazing stuff isn't it really Well, Um, well uh as I say, Sue was the first one there. Um, and since then, since because I hopefully I like to think that I mentored them, I helped them. There's two girls there now, two female officers there now who are doing an absolutely superb job um, and who can ride bikes like there's no tomorrow. Absolutely brilliant. So so the training and the, the actual <clears throat> job itself, uh, I imagine, unbelievably dangerous. I mean, really, um, the risks that I mean, I suppose watching them in action was was spellbinding that's the only word i can really use it was amazing and and i'd obviously seen the specialist group going around london when i was working in london you know whether it was in uniform or whether when i was on special branch on a surveillance team and the first thing you hear of course is the whistles you know you can hear the whistles Mm -hmm. from a long way away where they they come out and they dominate a junction don't they yeah 
Absolutely. Um, and and um, and it's like uh, the 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 confidence that you must have must need to come into like a really busy massive thoroughfare in London and stop all of the traffic in that way I mean does that feel weird the first time you do that it was terrifying <laughs> absolutely terrifying the first time I know but we were going down the mall um away from Buckingham Palace uh, towards T Square Trafalgar Square and I had to go on the wrong side of the road uh through the archway into the um, into Trafalgar Square and stop oncoming traffic coming towards me. Mm. Uh, but you get so much good training. The instructors tell mm. you where to go, what to do. You can sometimes, one of them actually led me in one day to say, this is the route you take. So you do become uh, such a, a professional motorcyclist and you you believe in your ability. Yes, there are times when you when I look back at some of the, uh, some of the uh, rides we did, I think oh my god I went on the wrong side of the road all the way down there but you know it was such an adrenaline buzz but there yeah. the training they give you you could you you rein it in and you you just maintain that professional edge um, and how many you, typically on a team how many of the of, of you are there well it depends on the on the number of vehicles that you are uh, escorting but normally be an easy rider which is the nickname for the person who sits in front of the uh, principal vehicle and then there'll be three working bikes so right. normally it'll be, for example, it was a if it's the prime minister or member of the royal family in one vehicle, mm. and they would have a backup vehicle with a, their close protection, personal protection officers in the back, and then mm. there'd be the easy rider front and three working bikes. So as I recall, I'm just trying to think when we did that <coughs> prisoner run with the counter-terrorism prisoners. Mm -hmm. I think there was a I think there was a Range Rover with armed officers front and yeah. in front of us and behind us. Mm -hmm. And then we had this the escort group. And I think we definitely had more than three or four. I think there was probably you know yeah. five, at least five or six from my recollection yeah when we used to do uh the escorts uh from say the Belmarsh to the Bailey and then back again uh with terrorist prisoners we would all be in cars and it would be at least uh, about four or five cars all with uh, uh staffed with at least three officers uh mm. the sergeant like for me at the back i would be at the back in the range rover because i'd be like the mobile control mm. um but the uh the lads I say lads because that's all they were uh, they would be in the vehicles a lead mm. vehicle um a, a point vehicle I think uh a different I can't remember what they're called now but there'd be about mm. four or five cars escorting um a vehicle normally a, a, like a, a jankle or a, an armed uh vehicle in which we would put the prisoner and uh, the escort and mm. normally that that vehicle would be driven by one of ours as well yeah. so presumably when you're doing all of the training you you're you're, you're training for the worst case scenario so the worst case scenario, let's talk through what that might look like. Worst case scenario is the convoy is hijacked by the mm -hmm. baddies at a mm -hmm. junction yep. um, and uh, with firearms. And, um, you know, so how, how do you train for that type of scenario? Well, you spend quite a lot of time down at Gravesend in Kent, which is our firearms training establishment. And uh, that was another course you had to do to pass, which is a part of the firearms techniques course to do with the special escort group. And you'd be driving around, as you probably know, Gravesend. And then the instructors would say front vehicle immobilised, rear vehicle immobilised, and they start putting rounds in at you. And you would automatically leap into action. And you know you had to get out of that vehicle get um, and get away because that was like a, a bullet magnet. Um, right. And you just train and train and train for the different scenarios. Mm. We'd also train for us on motorcycles as well. You know, mm. we'd lay the motorcycle down mm -hmm. or it'll crash. 
normally would have to lay it down to stop damage and get that grumpy garage sergeant turning up mm-hmm. uh and then fire a couple of rounds off there we would the idea was uh and we did a lot of training uh with the close protection units because obviously that if in the case of us uh, an actual event we would be working with them right. and we would bug off out get rid of our yellow jackets and our crash helmets and come back in and support them right okay so you're carrying sidearms or you're carrying um <coughs> sort of h and k in right. that scenario oh. On the motorbikes, we'd only carry our Glocks. And right. there was a suggestion at one stage of carrying a folding stock MP5, such as the Diplomatic Protection Group have. Uh, whether right. they they did that, I don't know. Um, but in the cars, we'd have a Glock and the MP5s. Right. Okay. So there's so there's plenty of firepower there. Um, yeah. You know, if you need it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, in terms of coming off a bike, so I'm a bike. Well, I say I'm a biker. I haven't ridden the bike for my my wife. Um, don't let me have a bike anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've been banned from having a bike, but but uh, I was a biker for years and years, and I uh, used to ride up and down to, to work every day. And my last bike was a uh, Triumph Sprint nine five five. Oh nice! Um, but um, I've never had to put a bike down, um, mm-hmm. and and I and I and it's every biker's worst nightmare, you know, of someone putting out in front of you and thinking, mm-hmm. right, what are my options here? I either go over the bonnet or I put the bike mm-hmm. on its side. Did you get taught to put a bike down? Well, unfortunately, I'd had actual experience of being knocked off a police motorbike when right. I was on traffic by a car coming out the side turning. So I know how painful it is and how mm. suddenly it happens. But they taught you. They're basically because you're riding along the road. You just put you you'd put the back brake on, swerve around and, and just step off it as it's coming to the floor. Sounds right. very very easy when you're talking about it but the time, <laughs> once you think everything else is going on you've got firearms you've got smoke grenades coming in you've got instructors shouting at you you know what it's like at the yeah. Rose end yeah um it was just one of those things you, you just you just learned to do it. we didn't do it that often because i think they couldn't cope with the damage being done to the motorbikes all the time we had special bikes down at, at Rose end we didn't use our own beautiful seg bikes yeah, obviously no, sure didn't, no. um, but i also had to do the advanced motorcycle course as well to get into the special escort group which was a absolutely wonderful experience uh we did yeah, i've heard all sorts of stories about that course mm-hmm. it just sounds absolutely uh, simultaneously fantastic fun and terrifying all at the same mm-hmm. time would yes, that be yes. sort of fair to say i would say so i did my standard motorcycle course back in 1991 with great instructors and then there i was there i was sitting there in 2006 uh, about to go on my advanced solo course and i thought I'm going to die because <laughs> I, I have been a motorcyclist all this time, but I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. But, you know, yeah. the instructors up there again, absolutely superb. Um, if I can mention one lad, Chris Latham, absolutely brilliant bloke. Uh, got loads of time for him and uh, I, I passed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I hear, fact- you, hear, you hear ridiculous stories. I don't know if this is an urban myth or not, but stories of uh, whether they still do this or not, I don't know. But you know, people having to try and having to take their jackets off and put them back yeah. on again whilst riding the bike. Oh, yeah, we did that. Yeah, so it was on the standard motorcycle. Oh, my God. So it's not an urban myth then? No, no, no. It was, that was down on the school road uh, next to the Northern Line. Uh, I'll tell you a funny <laughs> story about that, actually. Uh, and uh, we would be riding up and down and we just followed the instructor, right, do what he does. And he'd be riding on very slowly and he'd take off his boot. Then he'd take off his other boot and he'd put it in a pile. He'd be walking, driving up and down, uh, putting your stuff in. And then he'd take your jacket off. And then he'd take his shirt off. Now, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> so I'd had, I wore a T-shirt. Whilst um, riding along. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Without stopping then, at all. Absolutely. And then you, you stand on the saddle while you're driving along as well. 
uh, and then you'd sit side saddle. Uh, it's just a confidence building exercise. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, riding up and down the, the school road in my bra and my uh, motorcycle <laughs> uh, jodhpurs, because we didn't have leathers in those days, with all some the people, people on the northern some line. Some people would pay, pay good money to watch that, <laughs> Jimmy. <laughs> a very frightening experience for some people, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I, I, um, when I was on Sven's team, I, I, was, uh, I was the photographer on the team. So um, I used to sort of hang out with the, with the bikers quite a lot, really, because mm-hmm. um, very if it was cold uh, mm-hmm. and we were sat around not doing very much, they used to jump in, you know, with me to keep warm, really, as yeah. much as anything else. Yeah. And um, I would chat. But, I mean, I had huge respect. I've got huge respect for um, p- people, people like that who do that job, you know, surveillance bikers. Absolutely. Uh, it's an yeah. unbelievably dangerous job. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I can remember sitting on motorways you know trying to do trying to catch up on a follow or something um you know we'd be doing 120 miles an hour um and the biker would come past you as if you weren't, weren't even moving yeah yeah i worked with know. a couple on the seg absolutely superb blokes so good on motorcycles though i had the unfortunate experience of when i was on traffic going to a, a polack a, a police accident mm. uh, which is a fatal <clears throat> involving a surveillance motorcyclist uh, shepherd's oh, bush uh he'd, he'd been at uh, a lorry had done a uh, was it an eight Yes, a, a dustbin lorry done a U-turn in front of him, mm. uh, which wasn't very pleasant at all. No, no, it's horrible. Um, and I do think, I mean, I, I think I remember one of them saying to me that, that you know, we went, we went uh, there was that period, wasn't there, for many years when there was no such thing as risk assessments for anything. Was there? <laughs> no. and, then, and, then, and then gradually um, risk assessments became <laughs> the order of the day, didn't they? It was a yeah. risk assessment for absolutely everything. Um and and apparently they couldn't even. I think when they tried to risk assess the surveillance bikers' job, I think the machine blew up or something. You know what I mean? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it just couldn't do. It was just too dangerous. You know. Uh, you're saying about risk assessments or non non-existence of them. When I was in traffic, I was asked to go along and help the. I think it was a Hammersmith uh, crime squad. They were having problems with uh, youths uh, stealing mobile phones and wristwatches off people stationary on the A40 coming into town. And so they wanted some ladies, girls, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, ride the, to um, drive these lovely soft top cars and be decoys. Yeah. Uh, they all had to be advanced drivers and that was it really. And I can remember one time being sat upside Shepherd's Bush train station, I think it was. And I had, um, I was wearing a real Rolex. I remember that because they used to issue them every day, beautiful. And I had like a laptop on display. I was like, la, 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 um, pretending yeah. to be just a, a lady waiting for a, her husband to get off the train. Right. And there was uh, two groups, <laughs> two, two groups of youths came over. One was a group of white lads on their bicycles, BMX bikes, I think it was. And they yeah. came and had a chat with their uh, black counterparts, a group of black lads who mm-hmm. were there. And they were basically arguing. And they were, just happened to be next to the observation van who could right. hear everything. Yeah. And they were saying, well, basically, the white lads were saying, no, you're not going to slash her face because she's white. And the blacks say, well, we want to slash her face because we want her Rolex and da da da. Oh, I didn't nice. know this at the time, but I could, you know, a police instinct, you just get the hairs on your back of your neck going up. Yeah, something yeah, is yeah. going on here. I don't like this. Yeah. And then my real mobile phone rang, which was underneath my seat. And I picked it up and the DS in the observation van had obviously done his own dynamic risk assessment and told me to get the out of there (laughs) because something was going to go horribly wrong any minute. So I just explored it and accelerated away. But 
there's, there was no risk assessments or, or anything like I that know. in those days. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got to the stage now where um, the whole organisation, I, I don't want to go off, on, go off on one about all of this, but it seemed to me that, you know, the organisation went from, from, from <clears> a, a kind of a, a grown-up and, I think, sensible approach to risk yep. in, in that accepting that life is life is full of all sorts of uncertainties. Uh, policing is is has got more uncertainties than probably any other profession you could imagine mm-hmm. um and we just kind of got on with it whereas whereas i think um yeah that mentality has created the the risk the risk assessment mentality has created yeah. a very risk averse organization mm-hmm. hasn't it absolutely yeah yeah but anyway so specialist court group um mm-hmm. um you i mean how long did you do that for then I did that for about two years or so. I must admit, it, to be honest, uh, being the only female there, I felt very isolated and very low. Nothing, nothing was done. Nothing was said. The lads were fine. I had a great team of eight lads, but mm-hmm. I just felt I was bored after a while. I'll be honest. Right. I was bored. Yeah. Um, and so I was approached and it was suggested that I apply to uh, go close protection. Right. Uh, but same within royalty protection mm-hmm. and uh i because i was very short of i don't think there's many female officers close protection officers uh, in comparison to the number yeah. of male officers so i applied and got it and uh, i did my close protection course i can honestly say hand on heart it was the toughest course i've ever done um yeah i didn't i didn't that. enjoy it i did mm. not enjoy it but I, I didn't enjoy the course no no not at all it was a lot of pressure on you but i'm I'm made of good steel. I'm a daughter of a of a decorated Second World War fighter pilot. I am not going to give up. <laughs> and uh, I can remember the day uh, one of the instructors came to me and said, "We know you're going to pass this because we're in the uh, in the gym at uh, Gravesend, mm. and it was when we've got those uh, some of the instructors in those big fist suits. You know when they you have yeah, to fight yeah. them. Yeah. And my job was to get my principal from one side of the gym to the other diagonally mm-hmm. whilst dealing with an instructor shouting in your ear while you've got instructors trying to fight you mm-hmm. uh, all doing approved moves obviously and also yeah, you yeah. go to from that to fine motor skills which is like uh, uh i'm doing a stoppage on a glock and such like well you've got mm-hmm. the instructor shouting in your ear yeah. and i can remember turning around while having fought these instructors and i look around my my principal is still standing about five meters back where <laughs> i so i went back and said right coming with me and I pulled him a screen come on and it was mm. the instructor after said that was the time we knew you were going to pass because you just you were on your knees but you just got up yeah. and you got on with it yeah, yeah um yeah. yeah I it was a looking back now yeah I'm very very proud to pass it I think mm. out of 12 people four of us passed right uh, uh it was it, yeah there was I know a lot of politics of, uh... I know a lot of, um, you know, obviously having been in special branch for a long time, mm. a lot of my, a lot of my colleagues and, uh, and my brother, actually, my brother was a protection officer for, uh-huh. for many years and, you know, was a protection officer for various government ministers and, um, yeah. and what have you. And um, so, yeah, so I'm under no illusion what that job's like. Um, so you said, sorry, you said I sort of cut you off there. You said you yeah. were, um, there was some politics going on. There was politics between the, uh, uh, the instructors at uh, Gravesend, the SO19, as it was in those days, firearms mm-hmm. instructors, and also some of the uh, close protection officer instructors within royalty protection. But I, I kept out of all of that. There. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm still friendly with, with a couple of the instructors. I see them normally at the Union Jack Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very proud to have passed it. But when I got to the other end and I started doing the, the actual job, um, mm-hmm. 
it was a bit boring to mm. be honest and mm. also I was single at the time mm. whereas most majority of my male colleagues were married so they right. could go home and there'd be food on the fr- food on the table or there'd be stuff in the fridge whereas if I was away for a couple of days or long hours or such I'd come back and the milk had gone off and there was no food and mm. It was, and there was no yeah. one to talk to about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. What a bad day. What kind of day have you had at work, dear? Well, yeah. la, la, la. Um, yeah. Oh, and this was royalty, was it? So This is royalty, okay. yeah. Great lads. Um, mm. But being a single female, mm. and in fact, I can remember talking to one of the female uh, protection officers when I was on the SEG, mm. and she said, well, if you're going to do it, uh you won't have a boyfriend or a husband for long because you're never there and mm. also don't bother but buy a flat don't buy a house because there's no point in having a garden because all your plants will die because you're <laughs> never there <laughs> yeah. um, but it also it all sounds very familiar though i mean I, a lot of my friends an awful lot of them um uh, you know were protection officers for a long time and, and some still are you know mm. um uh, down in london and yeah it's a very strange life isn't it mm. very strange mm. and certainly i know you know, from my brother's experience, um, you know, away from home an awful lot. Um, uh, and, you know, and the money can be pretty good, I suppose. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, they get to go to some pretty nice places and eat yes. in some nice restaurants and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. But it's a very weird life. You know, they're, mm. you're, you're kind of, um, you know, the people that you're looking after are not your friends. Nope. Um, you know, there's a, and some of the people as well, without naming any names, some of the people that you end up having to look after are dreadful people. You know? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, so there's kind of a strange mm. relationship, mm. isn't there, between a police mm. bodyguard and, and the principal, isn't it? Yes, it's not like the programme on television, which I sat and watched about five minutes whilst shouting at it, and then my husband <laughs> told me to switch the television off. So, yes. <laughs> so you obviously uh, didn't uh, stay in that role for very long then? No, I didn't. No, I decided to, uh, that my superintendent at the time, excellent bloke, uh, Mr. Woods, he said, what do you want to do? I went, so I came back into uniform and I went to Windsor, all right, okay. uh, which is about 20 minutes travelling from where I live because I'd had all that travelling uptown all the time and either on a motorcycle or trains and such like. And it was so nice to be closer to home towards the end of my service. So I went back into uniform, still a firearms officer, mm-hmm. and I was in charge of a team at Windsor Castle. And I had the opportunity of working up in Balmoral in Scotland with the Queen um, and Edinburgh. Absolutely fantastic. I had oh, the, wow. uh, oh, it's amazing. I went to, uh, when I worked at uh, Scotland a couple of years uh, in a row, we went to the Gillies Ball, which the Queen hosts, one at the beginning of her tour up there, one at the end. Oh, and nice. uh, absolutely amazing to to whiz around the ballroom, having been taught Scottish dances by <laughs> the um, by the pipe major of the Queen. Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Uh, and to be to go to places and see things and experience things that the general yeah. public just yeah. don't get a look in. Absolutely and that, amazing. And that's the thing, Jeannie. This is part of the reason why I, I love doing this podcast is that I get to speak to people like you. And, and y- y- you know, what I desperately want to do <clears> through this podcast, really, is to sort of try and explain to people just how unbelievably varied the mm. the police a career in the police can be and you're a great example of that you know mm. you've done some really amazing things and uh you know things that you would never get the opportunity to do in mm. civilian life would you no i mean I've, the, some of the courses i've done the anti-hijack driving course absolutely amazing you know getting paid to drive high-speed vehicles backwards j-turns you to absolutely amazing and then to cycle around balmoral 
Um, I was the sergeant there, so we'd get from A to B on our bicycles, right. bicycles. So I'd have to go make sure that my lads were and lasses were where they're supposed to be on their fixed points around the castle area. And mm. one day I can remember cycling on and seeing two ladies walking towards me wearing headscarves, mm. uh, surrounded by a lot of little corgis. I'm thinking, uh-huh. oh my God. <laughs> so um, I had to come to a screaming halt on my bicycle whilst saluting, whilst the dogs almost almost took me off the bicycle. And of course, there's <laughs> Her Majesty there who acknowledged oh. me and walked past with her lady in waiting. But I must have made a, an absolute idiot of myself by seeing this policewoman coming to a grinding halt and trying to salute whilst not falling off a bicycle but amazing Uh, what a lovely lady the queen is absolutely amazing did you did you did you meet her sort of uh, did you actually speak to her at all at any stage yes i did several times uh, at windsor and at balmoral and she's such a lovely lovely lady yeah Yeah, well that comes across doesn't it and i think Mm. uh you know she's every Every time you see her, um, everywhere she goes, she always just seems to be such a nice person. And, um, you know, as well as being our queen, you know, she's obviously mm-hmm. clearly a very lovely human being, you know. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, wow. So um, so that's where you finished up, Windsor Castle, is that right? Windsor Castle, that's correct, yes. And I had, uh, I met all the military knights there who um, who uh, live in the, in the actual castle there. It's a lovely, lovely working environment. And uh, we used to have the Garter Day each year big ceremony and I love military history and to be able to walk around St George's Chapel mm. on a late turn uh, where they've got the choir singing just practicing with the organ playing and to to actually be in the place where Henry VIII is buried yeah absolutely incredible uh, oh, wow. I was very very lucky indeed to, to finish my time at Windsor Castle. So um, so you've you finished when you had your 13 is that right? I had, uh, I think it's about 28 and a half year service because I had pensionable service from my previous job. I worked for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission in Maidenhead. Right. Uh, they look after and maintain the war graves of the First and Second World War, which is my passion, my interest anyway, mm. military history. But I didn't know at the time when I was working for them whilst I was applying to join the Met that it would cancel my service. So in theory, with, in, with, with my special service as well, I did right. about 33 years police service for the public. Oh, well done you. Well done you. <laughs> Maximum respect. So, so yeah. So what, what have you done since leaving? Right. Well, I thought I would just leave the job and get a nice, quiet job, say at Waitrose, shelf stacking or something. Well, I did that for about two God, months. Yeah, I it, can just imagine no, you doing that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm an outside person. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who uh, in the police, who's ex-parachute regiment, he had a friend who uh, was a parachute regiment officer who was recruiting new guides or younger guides as they were for the Robert Legion all right and so I was interviewed by a lovely lady called Nicola Roland Smith and uh, we got chatting and she actually plays rugby and I played rugby as well for the Met so uh, we got on really well she I got the job and I was very honoured to work for the Robert Legion doing school trips and then that's kind of snowballed I was honoured and privileged to take second world war veterans back to Normandy for about five years in a row several times a year oh, uh, oh brilliant uh, I also do motors. I don't know if you'll be interested in this. Motorcycle tours abroad, to France. And oh, Belgium. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be able to sneak that one past Mrs. Donnelly no, somehow. Yeah. No. Uh, I work for uh, another company called Anglia now, um, who do uh, school trips, and also we work with the British Army, teaching oh. the young recruits about the realities of war. So, and uh, my husband uh, Brian, he's ex-parachute regiment. So that's how we met. Actually, our eyes met across a crowded uh, oh. uh, First World War trench full of children. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. I've 
I've done some great, I've done quite a lot of cycling over the years and uh, mm -hmm. I used to go to France uh, every year with a bunch of guys who, who used to do um, the World War One um, sites and yep. with Nor Normandy and yep. uh, yeah, brilliant, really fascinating and um, yeah, and it must be such a joy to meet some of the veterans and um, huh. hear some so, of their stories, I'm sure. To, to take uh, some of these lads back uh, each year. Some of them went back each year because it was a social event, but they could also pay respects to their colleagues that are buried out in the cemeteries and commemorate the memorials there. But some of those lads I took back was the first time they'd been back to that beach since the 6th of June, 1944. Wow. And uh, very, very emotional. Yes, uh, very I'm proud sure. to have met them. Yeah, yeah well, it's a, real, it's a real privilege and a pleasure, and particularly mm. given, you know, what your dad did. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing, really. But... And I must admit, I never used to wear my medals the, mm. the job medals you know the, the, the two uh jubilee medals i've got and the long service not caught out award medal as i call it yeah uh but i was told off by a second world war veteran uh who see me wearing my father's medals when i was out with normandy with them but he said where's yours i went oh i don't wear them. not with not not the company of heroes he said he waggled his walking stick at me and he said you put yourself in the line of fire for 30 odd years mm. in the police he said you wear them and yeah. i do now yeah and that's the thing isn't it i mean again you know one of my motivations for doing this podcast is to it's a celebration of policing really i suppose mm. if that doesn't sound too pretentious to say that but it's um you know i i feel it breaks my heart really to see um police officers looking so downtrodden at the moment and looking so mm. feeling so um you know on undervalued or whatever and mm. i you know i just want to i just want members of the public uh the wider you know community just to say um you know you need to understand what these people have done for you and they've done it for you you know mm. um and and i want police officers to feel proud about what they've done you know because because it's a pretty amazing job isn't it but listen um i'm conscious of the time uh we've done about an hour which i think is probably um quite enough bless you mm. i think you deserve it <laughs> <laughs> listen Jeannie. I've really enjoyed our chat. It's just been fascinating hearing your stories and I massively take my hat off to you for, <laughs> for what you've done, um, the, the risks that you've put yourself in, uh, the, the, you know, being an amazing role model for, for female officers and for, you know, hopefully younger women who are maybe listening, going to listen to this and, you know, feel inspired by what you've done. So well done you. Thank you. And uh, well done for coming on the podcast. Really. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure. You take care. Take Speak care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>